It's Friday, June 3rd. I'm Pam Jones, sitting in for Sarah Y. Kim. After a delayed start, a Baltimore County Commission created to examine the Inspector General's office will convene next week. If not new legislation, can anything be done about gun violence and mass shootings in the U.S.? We'll hear from the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Maryland's COVID-19 positivity rate is 8.14%, a slight increase from yesterday. State health officials reported nearly 2,500 new cases in a 24-hour period this morning. Hospitalizations are up at 509. Nine people have died. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott is announcing the Office of Infrastructure Development. Its job is to help coordinate major capital and infrastructure projects in the city. The office will be led by Matthew Garbark, who Scott says brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise, especially around city infrastructure. Administrators in Baltimore are urging parents to talk with their children after a gun was found at a local high school. A 17-year-old student brought it with him to Forest Park High School on Thursday. Police charged the youngster as an adult. Nobody was injured. After months of delays, a commission that will examine Baltimore County's Inspector General's office will hold its first meeting next week. WIPR's John Lee reports County Executive Johnny Olszewski says it will be an independent commission. Inspector General Kelly Madigan has been criticized by county council members for her tactics. Emails reveal that Oshevsky's chief of staff tried to restrict her authority. But in an interview Wednesday on WIPR's Midday, Oshevsky gave his full support for Madigan, noting this year he's doubling the size of her office to six. Any sort of small disagreements um, between staff uh, is, is part of governing, I think. But I am fully committed to uh, to the work. Oshevsky announced the commission last fall after council members called for oversight of the inspector general. An interim report that was expected by July 1st will now come later in the year. Oshevsky says the delay came from nailing down a staff for the commission that would be independent and outside county government. John Lee, WIPR News. The Baltimore Orioles will acknowledge National Gun Violence Awareness Day throughout the weekend after the recent mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, and most recently in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A moment of silence will be held before tonight's game at Candom Yards in memory of those who lost their lives to gun violence and to support organizations working for stricter gun legislation. The Orioles Charitable Foundation will match 100% of sales on Orioles Authentics merchandise during the weekend with donations to Moms Demand Action. Enough is enough. That was the message President Biden delivered to the nation in a televised address last night following the third mass shooting in the U.S. since May. 
Cross Hall, a ceremonial part of the White House residence, was lined with candles in honor of victims of gun violence as Mr. Biden angrily called on Republicans in Congress to stop blocking gun measures supported by large majorities in both parties. Biden's speech came one day after a mass shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, killed four victims, nine days after a teenager massacred 19 elementary school students and two teachers with an assault-type weapon in Uvalde, Texas, and 10 days before that, a teenager who subscribed to racist ideology and the replacement theory drove several hours from his hometown to Buffalo, New York, where he gunned down 10 black people at a grocery store. So after repeated thoughts and prayers, what can we do collectively about mass shootings in the U.S., and are they becoming more frequent? Daniel Webster is the Bloomberg Professor of American Health at the Department of Health Policy and Management at Johns Hopkins. He recently spoke with, on the record, Sheila Cast about the increase in these types of shootings. Some of the highest casualty events are also increasing. So um, I I think um, with the uh, multiple victim uh, scenario, um, you know, as we came out of COVID and and we were, there were more gatherings of groups, frankly, uh, we started to see more, more mass shootings. But of course, it also came in a time when all shootings were going up really at historic paces across the country. So uh, there are a lot of things that are converging now to, um, sadly, to create a condition for more mass shootings. And then I, I should underscore that some of these are, are driven, uh, you know, sort of by hate or misogyny and racism and, uh, you know, our, our, our social, cultural, and political climate, I think, is uh, fanning the flames. The Gun Violence Archive, a data collection and research site, uses more than 7,500 sources to track gun violence. The archives counted 230 mass shootings this year and more than 17,800 deaths caused by firearms. Webster, who also co-directs the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions, says there are different definitions. Well, first of all, it's good to just sort of um, understand that uh, there are different definitions for what's the threshold for a mass shooting. The Gun Violence Archive uses, um, you know, uh, four more or three or three or more victims, excuse me, uh, whether they die or not. You're going to get bigger numbers with that definition. Other um, other places have defined it in terms of four or more deaths, um, and then there are other ways that people sort of narrow it down. Webster says the most common forms of gun violence result from personal altercations or other arguments. Uh, This is true whether you look specifically at Baltimore or you look across the country broadly based upon available data that we have. Um, These types of uh, shootings are more than twice as common as what we think of as more predatory crimes with guns like robberies with guns or carjackings with guns. Uh, far, far more common are, um, are altercations uh, between individuals, usually where there's some prior relationship as opposed to strangers um, shooting it out. He also says there are policies proven to work to prevent gun violence. Uh, I'm going to sort of break it into two pieces. The first piece is one set of policies are focused on what I would refer to as the standards for being able to legally purchase or carry a concealed firearm. 
those vary uh, considerably across the 50 states in the District of Columbia, and we've had an opportunity to, to uh, study those things. So um, policies that are, you know, basically have the broadest um, disqualifications for violent behavior tend to be the most effective. So when you extend, uh, fe- uh, when you extend uh, prohibitions for violent misdemeanors in addition to felonies, you have uh, greater reductions in, in homicides, for example. Um, we also see that with uh, domestic violence restraining orders. The more broadly that is defined, for example, in co- covering dating partners as well as people who, who might be married or cohabitating, you see bigger effects on intimate partner violence. So uh, the first piece is just covering uh, and prohibiting individuals with violent backgrounds is key. But Webster says the second component is key, and that is keeping guns out of the hands of individuals that the law already deems dangerous and getting rid of the loopholes in background checks. What we found is that, um, you know, addressing this uh, really illogical and fatal flaw in our federal laws that only require background checks for sales from licensed dealers, uh, really that kind of policy facilitates illegal diversions or trafficking. And when you uh, when states address that, they have less trafficking. But the biggest impact is when you combine that background check requirement with a licensing process. Um, we have studied that, and we have found that that reduces homicides, suicides, mass shootings, uh, uh, shootings of law enforcement in the line of duty. And we have some preliminary data that also suggests that it's protective against um, law enforcement shooting civilians. So, um, so it's a very effective policy. You can hear the entire On the Record interview, Will Buffalo and Uvalde Spur Action on Gun Violence, by going to WIPR.org. We cover the news of the day here on The Daily Dose, but it's also a platform for listeners like you. Got a thought or a story you want to share about life in the era of coronavirus? Leave us a voicemail to play on an upcoming episode. The number is 410-235-6060. We've also got a button on the WIPR app so you can record a voice memo that way too. Just tap Daily Dose comments on the app or give us a call. The number again, 410-235-6060. We're always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Monday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WIPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my news team colleagues, Sarah Y. Kim, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Callan Tansel Sutton. Our digital content director is Jamala Kremple, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, stand together. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.